Hey everybody, welcome to the Jen Carroll Podcast. Let's get started. March 16th, 1980. It was a Sunday and we lived in Ventura and it was a regular day. Nice weather, the whole thing. We lived in a house. uh, It was actually a four bedroom house, which is kind of surprising considering that my mom was able to buy it herself with money she had earned, which was a big deal after the divorce. I was very proud of of her for being able to buy that house. We lived in a four-bedroom house that was on, uh, the back of yard was on school grounds, an elementary school grounds, and we had a dog named Ginger, except the little kids could never say Ginger's name, so it was always Jinjo, and Jinjo was expert at climbing trees, and so Jinjo would climb up in those trees and greet the children every school day. She loved those kids, uh, and she was a great dog, and I just remember how much I liked that house living up against the back of a school, because you'd always hear happy noises during the daytime, kids yelling and screaming and having a good time, laughing, a lot of laughing, and then, of course, talking to the dog. That house worked out perfectly for us, because my brother Jay was, um, he was able to have a bedroom that was right off the garage, and he used the garage as his smoking room. Yes, he and his bros would hang out in the garage, and they didn't really smoke I don't even think they were really smoking weed back then, but that was their room for, you know, being manly. And so he had a bedroom that was off the garage over by the kitchen. And then Gary and my mom and I all had bedrooms down the main bedroom hallway. Uh, It was a very easy place to live. We were easily within reach to our schools, both the junior high and the high school. And then my dad lived up on the hill, which was behind us. If you looked at the school from our backyard, there was a hill behind that. And that was a hill that had a very fancy tract of homes called Ondolondo, which recently burned, which in the Great Fires of Ventura, I think that was in the last year or so, a lot of homes there burned. And then just um, Ondolondo adjacent on the right were the Clearpoint Homes, a development that was fairly new and had a lot of homes up on the hill, and they all had views of the water. If you were lucky, they mostly had views of the water. The ocean was still pretty far away from our house, like five miles, six miles, but you could still see it. And it was a regular Sunday day, and the only thing that let me know something was up, and I got the call, was a a weird phone call from my dad's law partner, Phil Drescher. Phil never called us, not at my mom's house. He probably talked to my dad all the time, but he didn't call our house. After the divorce, we had become... um, kind of riffraff. My dad, being a lawyer, had locked up all the lawyers. And so my mom got a pretty bad settlement in her divorce. And she got very little alimony, which was still a thing back then, and then very little in child support because my dad just negotiated hard. He wanted to hang on to his money and just dole it out to us as needed rather than give my mom a big check. So she worked. She did a couple different things. But at this time, I believe she was working as a realtor which was kind of unfortunately a cliche for divorced mothers of that time. But she was she earned enough money to buy us a house. So I thought that was a pretty cool thing. I was very proud of her. She did that. And she also went back to school to get her college degree while we were in junior high, high school. So I was very, very proud of her for a working mom who um, had to wrangle three kids all the time. I was super proud of her for that. Anyway, it was a regular Sunday and my little brother Gary, who was... 12 at the time, had a regular job mowing the lawn at my dad's house. That's how he made his spending money. And so he had gone up to my dad's to work to do the lawn. It was a way he could make some spending money. He typically rode his bike up there and the other yard guys were there working on the hill, I think clearing weeds off the hill. And so Gary went ahead and went in through the front door, which was unlocked. 
And when he went in, if you had, my dad's house was organized, it was a split level house, but essentially also um, a one story. But the living room was a sunken living room. And when you walked in the front door, it was there on the left, you would have seen the living room. And I guess things were messed up. The couch cushions were a mess. There were things that were rumpled around. And then if you went straight back, you would go to the family room. There was a formal dining room attached to the living room there on on the left. If you're closing your eyes, you can see it. There's a dining room table. It's up a few steps from the sunken living room. Then if you walk straight back, you would walk into the family room slash kitchen. This was against the back of the house. If you look at the picture, it's under the um, awning that's there in the backyard. You can That's where the kitchen is. It faces out. It had a view of the ocean. And then there was the family room. And then if you had come in the front door and turned to the right, you would go down a hall. There was a guest bathroom there right near the front door, which a typical house thing. And then there was the first bedroom, which they used as an office. And then the laundry room, which went out to the garage that you can see from the front of the house. And then you'd make that left turn and go down the rest of the hallway. And there were two bedrooms there, a bathroom in the middle of the house. And then my dad and Charlene's master suite, which was along the back. And there was a sliding glass door that led that was uh, went out from their bedroom out to the patio, and then a small bathroom. It wasn't a huge bathroom, but a bathroom there at the back of the house. So if you were sitting on the green belt, which the picture that's on my blog has a picture of the shot, a shot of the house from kind of up above, there was a green belt there, and you could sit there and see everything going on inside their home. Often curtains weren't closed because the only other person that could really see other house was their back neighbor. And they, that was the front of the house for the back neighbor. So really there weren't like bedrooms facing each other. They had a fair amount of privacy on that um, plot of land. And I remembered, I liked that because you could sit out there in that yard and, and see pretty much all over Ventura County. As Gary walked in to the house that day, he could hear an alarm clock going off, which was unusual. And if you remember those old digital clocks, you would have to punch the crap out of them or, you know, use some sort of precision to turn them off. They didn't just have a big bar on the top, not at the beginning. They usually had some kind of little toggle you had to hit. So you could hear that alarm going off. And at first you thought, oh, I better wait a minute. They, you know, they could be waking up, which is weird because it was after lunch. And he thought for sure they were up already, but he thought, uh oh, I, you know, give them privacy. But then, but then he went on because he, it wasn't going off. Nobody was turning off the alarm. So as he turned the corner and he walked into their bedroom, he saw that there were two bodies in the bed and he walked around to the far side, which was my dad's side of the bed and turned off the alarm there on the nightstand and then slowly lifted the comforter that had been pulled over both of their heads. Now, in reality, this was a really bloody scene, but you couldn't really tell Gary, I, he didn't talk to me about seeing a lot of blood. I think he's talked to my mom about it, but it, it wasn't like that was the first thing you noticed because blood turns dry. It becomes that rust color. And so, and essentially he's looking at these bodies in the bed. So he goes to lift up the comforter. It sticks to my dad's head, but not in any, not too much. I mean, not so much that he was wrestling with it, but as he goes to pull the cover back, it, there's some resistance. And then he sees my a scar that my dad had on his shoulder, his upper right shoulder that we all knew about. It was like my dad, we would always tease him when he was in the pool that he was the great white whale. And we knew that scar. Um, we are a pasty people. Very fair. So anyway, and my dad, I have my dad's body. He always carried some extra weight. But he had that scar and Gary knew that was my dad. And so he stopped and turned and used the phone that was there on my dad's nightstand, a landline, and called to 911. He had just learned about 911 at school. It was a fairly new feature. 
but he called 911 and they asked him for the address of the house. And none of us knew the house. I, I don't even know if I knew the house number then, but he went to run outside and check the house number on the front of the house. And then he came back into the kitchen and picked up that phone and finished the call and told them the house. And then they asked him to go ahead and wait outside. Gary went out, sat on one of the walls that was outside of the house. And when he did that, uh, two people who are my dad and Charlene's friends, Judge Lewis and his wife, Claire, lived in that same development and happened to swing by and saw Gary sitting there on the wall. So they, you know, rolled down the window, talked to him quickly, and he told them what happened. And as it turned out, that was really fortunate because they then stayed with him. And I don't know if we could have asked for two better people just because you know, they were my dad's friends. So Gary held it together, talked to them, told them what was going on. And as it, and my mom was also up in that same development, visiting a friend herself. And so mom had decided to just swing by my dad's house on the way home and make sure Gary made it and was doing his job. Very mom thing to do. And as she drove by, she had came by when the police had arrived and she saw things going on and was thought what this doesn't make it what's going on I mean where's my son and what's going on here so she turned around down in the church parking lot came back up and asked two people on the side of the road what's happening and one of the people drew his hand across his neck you know and kind of that you know not not alive motion the dead motion and she said which one and they said both and mom of course, had her moment of being blown away that they were both dead inside the house. That's just not something we ever thought would happen. So she found Gary. Uh, they told her that he had actually been taken up to the Lewis's house. They took him up to the house. Now, I just learned this today from my mom because she read my blog and pointed out what was wrong. So yes, they took Gary up to their house um, up on the hill, higher up on the hill. And that's where mom went to get Gary. As for Jay and I, who were back at Sutter Street at my mom's house, I knew something was up because Phil had called, but I didn't know what was going on. All of a sudden, when they came home, Gary came bursting through the door. It looked like he had been crying and he ran straight to his bedroom. My mom came in after him and said, I need to talk to you guys, you know, something to get us together. And then I remember so vividly that I was sitting on a black beanbag chair that we had. It was a really big one, um, very, very 70s. And it was in front of this piano, and that was my grandma's piano, Lila. She was my favorite person of all time. And I loved that piano, and it's still so prominent in my mind that that piano was part of the story because it just, it, it was maybe the right thing that needed to be there for me. I don't know, but I was really, it really is part of the story for me every time I think of it that I was sitting there at my mom's feet, looking up the piano and at this incredible oil painting that was, um, that was behind it on the wall, this rich painting of a very active ocean scene. Mom still has it. It's, it's gorgeous. It's this oil painting, but I could see those two things as she was talking to us. And essentially she said, your father is dead. And we stopped. And then I quickly asked, did Charlene shoot him? Because I knew my dad had a gun. I didn't like that. My dad had a gun. He had a concealed carry permit because he had been representing a man who was up for the death penalty in a case where he was defending him and he had to get a gun because my dad got death threats. I did not know all this history, but it, my dad had worked hard on this case. He was appointed by the court to be this man's attorney. And I know at one point my dad said to my mom, what if I get him off? Like, what if I actually get him off? Because he had found something that could get this man off. But the fact is, my dad even knew the guy was guilty. He had raped and killed a, a little girl in the Santa Paula Creek. 
at that time, my dad had gotten a gun and I never liked it being in their house. And the reason I didn't is that dad and Charlene fought. My dad and my mom used to fight, but it was usually arguments and my dad had pretty much all the power. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't, they weren't really horrible fights. They were mean, but they weren't, they weren't too dramatic. When dad and Charlene fought, it was high drama. In fact, one time he called me up to the house to break up a fight between them, which is pretty unusual to think of calling your kid. But I know part of it was because I could drive and I could get there and he didn't know how to get anybody else there. But I was called to come up and break up this fight. And that's when Charlene did something that I had never seen done before. She took the silverware tray, the one that you put the forks and the knives and the spoon in, spoons and you, she took that silverware tray out of the drawer in the kitchen and my dad was outside of the lawn and they were yelling at each other and she flung the silverware not the tray just every individual piece of the silverware in one fell swoop everything went pell-mell end over end through the sky going towards my dad not one piece hit him but I always thought that was one of the most badass moves I had ever seen was to take the silverware and throw it like that it created of course a huge mess but I don't believe that mess got cleaned up until the next day so I was used to big fights and I was used to drama and that's why I thought there would be a chance that Charlene would shoot him not because she wanted him dead but because she might actually go use a gun to make a difference, to, to escalate the fight, to, to try to win. My dad would fight and crush you in fights. He was all about winning, always about winning. And I learned that early on. And he would absolutely go for the kill in terms of his the war of words and that sort of thing. So that's what I thought. But mom said, no, they're both dead. That is, of course, not what either of us expected. Jay and I, Jay immediately turned and went out the door. And he went for a run. Mom had to go talk to Gary in the back. So she went back to his bedroom and talked to him. And I looked around and realized I probably should go check on Jay. I don't know where he was going. And then I also knew I was going to need to check on one more thing. So I hopped in the car. It was a 1964 Volkswagen, the one that's in all the pictures. That was a car I could use as we got older. And so I hopped in the bug and headed out to find Jay. I didn't find him. I, I headed towards the direction where his best friend lived, but I did not find him there. And so instead I went ahead and went up to my dad's house because I just had to see for myself what was going on. And when I got there, that's when I saw that the police were there. The the crime tape was up. It was um, people milling around, lots of activity. I didn't stop and talk to anybody. At least I don't remember. I may have. The police might even have things that I said then. But I don't think I stopped to talk to anybody at that point because I don't even know what I would have said. We all went back home. Uh, Jay eventually got there. He ended up at a good friend's of my parents' house, which was probably a really great thing because they were just, mom says, they're just the right people to have talked to him that night. And we all ended up back at the house. We had a little bit of time before everybody found out. The newspaper in Ventura came out in the afternoons, and so there wouldn't be another edition till Monday afternoon at around 3.30. That's when we figured the news would start breaking. But the phone started ringing, and you don't need to have a newspaper for um, news to spread in a small town. People found out quickly, and we started to get lots of phone calls. Also, the police came over, and I, I know that um, one of... There, there are lawyers there. I'm not even sure. It might have been that Phil came over. I don't remember exactly. It, it feels like a blur to me. That is when things started getting really crazy and chaotic and lots of people being around. And of course, it just picked up speed the next day when the news got out formally in town. 
So that's what happened on the day that my dad was murdered. I am sure I cried. I think I cried at the moment my mom told me, but I also know that whenever things are complex like that, we all tend to be a little less emotional and a lot more inquisitive and needing to know and be involved and find out what's going on. So I suspect that's really what happened and why I don't have a lot more memories about it. But it's interesting because it feels like it was a lot like what happened on the day that D'Angelo was arrested. And I will talk about that in the next podcast. If you like the podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate it. And I'm out. Until next time. Do, 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 do.